wonder if any of you can say this with me. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. How long has it been since you heard that? Okay, don't answer. Welfare in the U.S. Constitution means health, happiness, or prosperity, well-being. We rarely use the term farewell anymore, but flip the words and you have welfare. My introduction to the word welfare was the preamble to the TV show All in the Family. Remember this? Carol O'Connor and Gene Stapleton singing, Those Were the Days. Those Were the Days! Huh? <laughs> I won't do the whole thing for you. Didn't need no welfare state. Everybody pulled his weight. That's where I heard of welfare first when I was a kid. While our welfare system in the U.S. was developed 80 years ago, an earlier one can be discovered in the Bible, Acts 2, just after the, uh, the section about the day called Pentecost. Acts 2, chapter, I mean, chapter 2, verse 43 begins, All came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Walter Wyatt survived the crash of his beechcraft in the water about six miles from an emergency landing strip, but his plane disappeared quickly and left him bobbing in the water in a leaky life vest around eight in the evening. Peter Michael Moore tells his story in Reader's Digest. He had blood on his forehead, and as he did, he floated on his back and felt a hard bump against his body. A shark had found him. Wyatt kicked the intruder and wondered whether he would survive the night. He managed to stay afloat for the next 10 hours. So in the morning, Wyatt saw no airplanes, but in the water, a dorsal fin was heading for him. Twisting to try to get out of its way, he felt the hide of a shark brush against him, and in a moment saw two more bull sharks slicing through the water. He kicked them, they veered away, and he was nearing exhaustion when he heard the sound of a distant aircraft. When it was within a half mile, he waved his orange vest, and the pilot in the aircraft radioed the Cape York, a cutter, 12, miles away, 12 minutes away. And he said, get moving, Cutter. There's a shark targeting this guy. Well, as the Cape York pulled alongside Wyatt, Jacob's ladder was dropped over the side, and Wyatt climbed wearily out of the water and onto the ship where he fell on his knees and he kissed the deck. He'd been saved. Nothing less than outside intervention could have rescued him from sure death. 
For the ten lepers between Samaria and Galilee, nothing less than outside intervention could have rescued them. Leprosy, this skin disease, created outcasts. In biblical times, leprosy meant a life of exile, just as it still does in some places. There are at least dozens of leper colonies in India today. But these ten men sought a return from exile, and so they called out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And Luke tells us, when he saw them, when Jesus saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. Notice the richness in this verse. First, when Jesus saw them, he saw beyond their diseased skin. He saw into them, saw them cast out from society like human trash, outcast because of a disease over which they had no control. Fortunately, they hadn't given up hope completely, and they gained the attention of this person whose reputation as a healer must have preceded him. For they call him by name, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And Jesus sees them. Out of control and helpless, the ten outcasts hear a word of hope. The law said a priest had to declare them ritually clean before they could live again in town with their families. So Jesus telling them to go and show themselves to the priest gave them hope. Jesus saw in them the potential for healing. He had a vision of ten changed lives. This same Jesus has a vision for our changed lives as well. And did you notice that all ten took off before they were healed? Listen again. It says, as they went, they were made clean. By simply responding to Jesus, their hopes were realized. After the priests would declare them clean, they would be able to return home from exile and show their families this life-changing miracle. We're going to juxtapose chapter 29 of Jeremiah to this section from Luke's gospel. So in your brains, back up in time to the year 598 before Christ. If you've heard of the Babylonian exile, we are at the beginning of it. There was a major deportation of the people in and around Jerusalem to Babylon, Babylon, about 50 miles south of modern-day Baghdad, about 700 miles from Jerusalem. Essentially, the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, took hostages. And so instead of spreading them out in Babylon, he let them stay together. He let them continue corresponding with the people in their homeland. He didn't want the people left in Judah to forget that these people were hostages so that they would continue to be 
obedient to Nebuchadnezzar. While Hananiah, a false prophet, optimistically prophesied that the Israelites would be in Babylon for only two years, Jeremiah foresaw the 70-year exile. And so with that background, if you'd like to turn to Jeremiah 29 in your pew Bibles, feel free to do that. I'm going to read verses 1 and 4 through 7. This is part of the correspondence. So it begins, These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. The letter said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there. And do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. There ends the reading. In the late 1990s, the pastor of this congregation pulled together about 50 people to look at different areas of the church and plan for its future. One team studied together the possibility of the church moving from its historic location at 6th and Campbell. That was one of several times that this possibility had been discussed throughout the last probably five decades. As the neighborhood changed, you, Calvary, faced the decision about whether to find a plot of land in the suburbs somewhere where more people from suburban neighborhoods might fill the pews and the coffers and hopefully fill seats of ministry as well. Your decisions to not move has cost you. You might have built a more practical church building with a really ugly sanctuary. You might have had a larger congregation so you could be more anonymous and not be called on as much to help. You might have had more staff members and more programs without an opportunity to transform the lives of needy people in the city. You decided, with all of its challenges, that this is your home. And Jeremiah was telling the exiles in Babylon that this, where you are right now, is your home. Maybe you wish that earlier decisions had been different, but you're here now, and you get to choose your attitude about it. As I mentioned, there are 700 miles as the crow flies between Jerusalem and Babylon. That's a physical distance, but the physical distance 
was not the same as the spiritual distance. And that spiritual distance felt even greater. The Jews were used to worshiping at their own temple in Jerusalem, and they felt completely out of place, out of sorts. Psalm 137 was written during this time. It begins like this. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, and there we wept when we remembered Zion, Jerusalem. On the willows there we hung up our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs, and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And yet Jeremiah was telling them to embrace Babylon as their new home. Unpack the suitcases. Unload the boxes in the attic. This isn't a dorm room that you'll be leaving in nine months. This is home. I read that toward the end of his life, Sir Walter Scott, in ill health, took a trip to Italy And one day in a bookshop, he happened to see a lithograph of Abbotsford, his beautiful home on the Tweed in Scotland. Bursting into tears, he hurried from the shop and started at once for Scotland. When he reached London, he was unable to stand, but he insisted that he be carried carried to the steamer for Leith. On the journey to Tweedside, he lay unconscious in the carriage, But when the carriage entered the valley of Gala, he began to look about him and presently to murmur a name or two. Gala water, surely. Buckholm, Torwoody. And when the towers of Abbotsford came into view, he sprang up with a cry of delight. Home is not just a place, it's a feeling. Now, what if that were our attitude about coming home to downtown West? Did you hear late in the week we have this new district designation? As of October 7 in city council's meeting, from 3rd Street to just beyond Ram House at the West, and from about Rohrer to Marshall at the South, we are now downtown West, and we hope to connect well with other businesses and nonprofits and churches in the neighborhood, to make this an even better home. A home, perhaps, where we build houses and live in them, with the approval of the Architectural Review Board. (laughs) Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Multiply here and do not decrease. And seek the welfare of the city where God has sent us. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare welfare, we will find our welfare. Jesus knew that healing is a part of God's welfare state. If we want people to fare well, we too will be in the business of praying and speaking and acting for the healing and the welfare of our city For in its welfare, we will find our welfare. Back to the gospel. 
Luke tells us that 10 lepers were made clean. Their leprosy went away. Their bodies were healed. But one, when he saw that he was made clean, he stopped following Jesus' command to go and tell the priest or listen to the priest's command. He turned around. And praising God with a loud voice, he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. Now, how many of us have ever thrown ourselves on the ground and thanked somebody for something? We don't do that. Now, Walter Wyatt did it because he had been saved. Do we realize that we are saved? Now, all of Jesus' stories have a twist, and the twist here in the second part of the story is when Jesus said, and he was a Samaritan. Okay, well, so what? You know, to us, that's what we think. So what? So he was from Samaria. That just doesn't mean that much to us. But this was an enemy. This was a foreigner. The Israelites hated the Samaritans and vice versa. But to a Samaritan, Jesus said, your faith has made you well. There's a slight difference there. All the men who followed Jesus' command to go to the priest were made clean. But this one who came back to Jesus with praise and gratitude, he was made well. The word used there, the Greek word, is similar to salvation. He was saved. The Samaritan, the enemy, the foreigner was saved by Jesus. So who can you picture being saved by Jesus? Who might be an enemy to you? As a female Baptist pastor, that means that I have to imagine Jesus offering salvation to those who reject my call to ministry. If you feel that illegal immigrants are the enemy, This man who praised God and said thank you to Jesus might be like an illegal immigrant. If someone from another people group has hurt you, picture someone from that group praising God and thanking Jesus and Jesus offering salvation to that person. It's challenging. Mordecai Ham was a revivalist preacher back in the early 1900s, and during a Texas revival meeting, a man in the congregation was overcome by the love and mercy of God. He had killed four men and never dreamed of forgiveness, never dreamed that God could care for him. He was so touched by this good news that he stood up during that revival in 1910 and shouted, Saved! 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 And Jack Schofield, the the musician for the revival, was so moved by this joyful outburst that he used those words to write into a hymn the next afternoon. So you think about that web. The life of Mordecai Ham affected the life of a murderer who affected the life of a musician, who affected the lives of countless people who have found hope and courage through this song. 
We are one big spider web of people affecting each other. Think about the way you greet the first person you encounter outside the doors of this church today. You have the power to make a difference in the life of that person. And in that person's welfare, you find your own welfare. When we invest our time and resources into the lives of other people, we walk in the footprints of our Savior, and we are all raised to a new level. Let's pray for our city. We feel, O oh God, that you have been so gracious to us. We have this place. We have people surrounding us who are on a journey of faith. We seek you and you respond. Thank you for being wherever we are, whether we feel at home or in exile. And thank you for offering healing to us so that we then can offer it to others. We pray, O oh God, for this city. We pray for the new downtown West community. And we pray that we could be your flagship people in this community that can bring healing and hope and fullness to body, mind, and spirit. We ask these things in the holy name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.